Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. It sounds like from what Jeff preached on last week and what uh, Ted is going to be preaching on next week, um, this will be kind of perfect sandwich here. Uh, going to be spending time in Exodus 32, which is definitely brings context a lot to Hebrews and what Ted's going to be sharing next week. So if you want to open Exodus 32. So ever since I quit physical education teaching and began cross-cultural church planning, I found that it's a lot harder to get in exercise. I was so blessed to be able to, as part of my job, be moving around with the kids, playing volleyball, basketball, not really have to worry about working out at home. And now I find myself sitting a lot or just standing still and realizing, wow, I, you know, I have two kids, we have another on the way, I want to stay healthy. So I needed kind of an extra kick in the pants, and Jen's been trying to kick me in the pants for a while, but being married seven years, I could not do anything, and she'll still love me. So I decided to, <laughs> I decided to get one of these little fitness watches, right? And as I was setting it up, you know, this thing counts my, my heart rate and my steps and different things. I was setting it up, it was asking me for my goals, you know? And so I'm selecting my goals from the app, and it's like, how many days a week do you want to exercise? I'm like, all right, well, well three. And it's going to remind me to do that. And I can sleep, select how much I want to sleep a night, and it'll track to see if I'm sleeping as much as I, I should be. And so I you know, select eight hours, and I want to take 8,000 steps a day or more. I want to drink 75 ounces of water. And, and I'm selecting all these things, and it, it buzzes, right? And notifies me every time you know, I'm, I'm accomplishing goals, like it's telling me I'm reaching my steps. And it told me that I did 24 flights of stairs yesterday, and it's just good to be acknowledged for things like that, you know? after not being acknowledged for stairs all my life. But either way, so I, I made these, these little resolutions and these, these goals for myself, and I could ignore the buzzing, right? And I already have ignored the buzzing. It says, oh, you haven't moved at all this hour. And I said, well, it's too bad. <laughs> you know? And so, you know, I think it'll help, but I could still ignore it. I'm still going to fail. I know that this watch is not enough to really drive me to exercise more. And resolutions are good, right? They help us, but every year people make these resolutions and commitments and goals, and a huge percentage of them fail, mostly within the first week, many more within the first month, and very few actually fulfill their whole commitment and make it a new habit. Breaking resolutions and, and goals and commitments is sadly part of our nature, and it's been happening for thousands of years. And I want to tell you a story from Exodus about a few million people who all made the same resolution, the same commitment the same covenant, and it was a big one. But first, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, that your word is a story about Jesus, and we get to just sit under that story and learn, learn about our creator, learn about our savior, learn about our sin and our need for him. Thank you, Lord, for the gathering of people every week where we get to be reminded of our purpose in life, of worshiping and serving you, that we get to be encouraged by each other, that we get to sing songs to you and songs to each other about your goodness, about your faithfulness, about your, um, your work that you've done. It's so refreshing to be with the body when just throughout the week in the world we, we tend to forget who you are and we forget our identity and why you've made us and just remind us this morning of who we are and who you are and how we need you. Thank you so much that you have brought the team to Sulukout safely. Pray for 
the three guys driving up right now that you would protect them and give them a smooth border crossing. And thank you for bringing the Czech home team home safely uh, recently and pray that they would get rest and back on schedule. Just ask that you would do a great work in Sioux Lookout this week through that team and also through the guys up in Cat Lake. Just pray that we would submit to your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So this is a story of the Exodus. After God miraculously brought his 70 people to Egypt to spare them during the famine in Canaan, the Pharaoh who loved Joseph and Israel, he died. And a new Pharaoh who did not share the same love was instated. Well, this king feared the people because they were going numerous and very powerful. So he decided to make them slaves and treat them harshly. However, his plan backfired because the more he did this, the more numerous and powerful Israel became. So then he decided he would kill the firstborn sons to the Israelites by throwing them in the Nile. However, God heard his people's cry for help, saved one man named Moses, spoke to him as an adult, and he told him to lead his people out of Egypt to the promised land. God gave Moses signs to perform to Pharaoh, but they were mimicked by the Egyptian magicians, and Pharaoh ignored that they were from God. Not only that, but he increased the workload for the Hebrews and caused the the people, Israel, to hate Moses. Well, however, that's when the real show began. Plague after plague, God inflicted deadly blows on the land, the animals, and the Egyptian people, but he always spared the Israelites. Through all this, Pharaoh's heart was still hardened, though. Why? Because God was the one hardening it. God wanted to show the whole world his power and that he is the one that was going to save his people, Israel. And at last, after killing the firstborn son of the Egyptians, Pharaoh finally let God's people go. They plundered the Egyptians before they left, and they were finally free after 400 years in Egypt. From a puny 70 people coming in to a powerful nation of several million. It wasn't over yet, though. Pharaoh's heart had hardened again, and the Egyptians were hot on the Israelites' tail. The people were trapped, and I'm sure... As you know, this did not stop God. He parted the Red Sea and led those people across and brought the waters down on the Egyptians, killing their finest soldiers. Israel marveled at this powerful act of God, and they sung a beautiful song to him on the other side of the Red Sea. Well, as they journeyed through the wilderness, God provided them with bread that fell from heaven and water that gushed out of rocks. God even began to teach them about the importance of remembering that he is the one who rescued them and that he is the one who will always provide for them. Because don't forget, these Israelites were surrounded with nothing but false gods for 400 years in Egypt. And they needed to be taught once again who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was. Well, when they reached Mount Sinai, God spoke to Moses and told them that he was about to come down and speak to the people. So the people got ready, and they waited at the foot of the mountain in fear as a thick cloud covered the whole mountain. Then he spoke. God spoke to his people. With a thundering voice, God gave his people the Ten Commandments. And that day, a covenant was made between God and man. However, the people begged Moses to speak to God for them because they were terrified at his powerful presence. So God told Moses to remind the people that he has spoken to them and that they are to not make any gods of silver or gold, but they must sacrifice to him alone. He promised to be with them and bless them as they obeyed these commands. And then after giving many more laws, promises, and warnings, the people gathered together and responded 
to God with one unified voice. We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. What a resolution. That makes my fitness resolution look pretty wimpy. We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. I could see why they said this. God had just done what no other God could do. He rescued them from the most powerful nation in the world through supernatural plagues, moving millions of gallons of water, and making bread fall from heaven. And then he actually spoke to them. They were amazed. They were terrified. How could they say anything else besides, we'll do all that the Lord commanded? But the story of the Exodus doesn't end there. It's not just a happy story of God rescuing his people, giving them these clear commands, and the people obeying. But it's sad how many times that that's actually where Christians end the story when teaching Sunday school or even adults. We talk about the burning bush, we talk about the plagues, we talk about the Red Sea, the bread, and then we end by spending the most time talking about the Ten Commandments. And most children's Bibles sadly do this as well. We love explaining away the Ten Commandments to little ones and hope to hear them say, we will do all that the Lord has commanded. What parent doesn't want their little guy or girl to come home and say, Mom, Dad, I promise to never disobey you again. <laughs> right? But the story goes on. After this big resolution that the people make in chapter 24, we see several more chapters of God explaining more laws in detail to Moses up on the mountain and then giving him these stone tablets. But then in chapter 32, we see the scene pick back up with the people. So they just made this resolution, and now here the scene comes back to them. So keep in mind, they just made this big promise. And we're going to read together at first Exodus 31, 18 through 32, 6. And we're going to see the people's hearts turning back to Egypt. When he finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave them the two, him the two stone tablets of testimony, uh, tablets inscribed by the finger of God. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Then Aaron replied to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from their hands, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, let me just pause. When, when you read this, when I read this, I'm like, I wanted to say, when Aaron saw this, he said, what are you doing? Get this out of here. It's not what he says. He says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And then he made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and then got up to play. Well, there you have it. Resolution broken. It only took a month and ten days. Let me read the first four verses of chapter 20 in Exodus to help us understand exactly which commands they broke. It says, when, Then God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have any other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them. God said, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. The people here in Exodus 32, they say, this is your God. 
pointing to the calf. God said, do not have any other gods besides me. Well, here the people with the Egyptian jewelry that they plundered make an Egyptian god. God said, do not bow down or worship, right? They got up early, got up early in the morning to worship a hunk of gold. How many of you guys have heard the term syncretism before? Syncretism, does it sound familiar to anybody? Okay, some. Syncretism is the combining of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought, kind of into one messy new religion. That's exactly what happens here. The people had just left Egypt, and they were on their way to Canaan, both of these nations that worshipped false gods. Not only that, but they had a mixed multitude that actually came out of Egypt with them, of other nations, who must have still been influenced, influenced by idol worship. And so what we see here is the Israelites going right along with it, going right along with the religion of these other countries. It doesn't seem here that the people are switching gods, but they're actually trying to put an image to Yahweh. Because Aaron says, we're going to have a festival to the Lord, to Yahweh. And then they get drunk and they participate in these sexually illicit activities. So what they're doing is they're combining Egyptian images with Canaanite worship styles to the one true God. It's syncretism. They want to worship God, but they're doing it all these confused ways. They're worshiping Yahweh, but not the way that Yahweh wants to be worshipped. See, the first command that God gave, it had to do with worshiping the wrong God. The second command had to do with worshiping the right God in the wrong manner. Both of, the, both of these are equally important to God. You see, this calf, it wasn't just out of the blue they wanted to make a calf. The calf is actually the Egyptian god called Apis. It's a, this calf that represented strength and power. So these Israelites are patterning their style of worship after this pagan land. They had been there 400 years. They're acting like them. And don't put yourself above them either. We're not above them. God teaches us in his word the way that he wants to be worshipped, but then we often let the pressure of the world around us influence that worship. And we begin syncretizing, we begin looking like the world. See, we syncretize without God's word the same way the people did. I also see this consistently among native believers in Canada. They have native superstitions and spirituality combined with Jesus and church, and it is one big mess. Sometimes we just wish that we were the there's no missionaries before us because it would be less work. It is so hard to go in these places and have to undo through the teaching of the word so much stuff that was never undone. And then verses 5 and 6 and 32 help us understand why these were the first commands given. It says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for father, their father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. God admit, he says, I'm a jealous God. And that's not the same way we're jealous. That's a good jealousy. That means he does not want to share, he does not want his people to share their allegiance, devotion, and worship with any other God. I wouldn't either if I just did all that for my people. He also says that disobedience is going to be punished but obedience is going to be rewarded. I can imagine that as this book is being read to the wilderness generation 40 years after this event, because that's who this book is being read to before they enter the promised land, they can't help but realize that it was their parents, it was their grandparents who worshipped this calf. It was not far off from them. 
they can't help but realize as they hear this story that since the very giving of the law, they have broken it. Since their departure from Egypt, they have become Egypt in their actions. Instead of following God based on revelation through his word, they follow God based on their imagination and what they thought he looked like. They were influenced by Egypt. They were syncretized. And this story, it it becomes a blot in Israel's history. This story is going to be retold many times throughout the scripture. To the Israelites, it's like they hate hearing it again because they know this is a blot. Oh, we messed up, we messed up. And unfortunately, according to verse 6, they should expect judgment for times to come because of what they did. And that generation that did this, they ended up all dying in the wilderness throughout those 40 years. Well, as we read this, we realize the same thing. Breaking God's commands and breaking resolutions we make to follow those commands, it's sadly part of our nature. And that deserves judgment. So let's see what happens next. We're taken back to the top of the mountain where God and Moses are meeting. So let's read verses 7 through 14, and we're going to see Moses acting as an intercessor. Verse 7 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord also said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger could burn against them, and I could destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses interceded with the Lord his God. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people you brought up from the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand? Why should the Egyptians say, he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your great anger and relent concerning this disaster plan for your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You swore to them by your very self and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give your offspring all this land that I have promised, and they will inherit it forever. So the Lord relented concerning the disaster he said he would bring on his people. It's amazing. I find it kind of funny, though, as I'm reading this, that God says, your people. It reminds me of parents, even myself sometimes, saying, did you see what your son just did to your spouse? You know? Well, God's not childish like we are when he says that. He does this with Moses to draw out intercession from him. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But here, in this text, we get confirmation from God himself that he knows exactly what the people did and which commands were broken. He he was up there meeting with Moses, yet he still knew what they did. Not only that, but God notes how quickly they have broken them. It's easy to read this part and not accidentally apply the same attributes of God to our lives. We learn right here in this text that God's all-knowing. Without being down with the people, he he sees exactly what they've done in detail. I don't know about you, but that should cause a little bit of discomfort in our own lives in regards to our sin. God can see exactly what we do at work, what we do at home, what we do behind closed doors, what we do on the computer, on our phones, in our minds. God's all-knowing a very important truth about him. Are we hiding? Are you hiding from that reality? 
do we think we could do anything good or bad without Yahweh knowing? We're not above these Israelites. Well, God's conclusion is to destroy them. As the reader, that should also make us uncomfortable. We ask, why God? Why, why do all these things to rescue them and then so quickly decide to wipe them out? Well, thankfully, Moses asked the same question so he could get the answer. And we see that part of his motivation for asking, Moses asking why God, is for the sake of what the nations, specifically what Egypt, will think. What Moses is saying is, why? God, if you destroy them, everyone watching is not going to see this as a rescue story. They're going to see it as a horror story. Moses says, be true to the promise you made and bring them out into the promised land. The people need to see that. The other nations need to see that. The story will be ruined if you destroy them. Without even knowing the depth and disgust of their sin, here Moses is standing as an intercessor before God, reminding God to be faithful of his promises. What an amazing leader. So God relents, just like that. Instead of destruction, he gives mercy. Now, I don't want to beat around the bush here, but as we read this, how many of you think in your minds, wait, can man really change the mind of God? Because that seems like that's what's happening here. Doesn't it seem a little indecisive on God's part? And we know that Scripture says that God does not change his mind or his plan. So what's the point? What's going on here? We have to keep in mind the original audience. Who is the original audience? People. With people minds. The people in the story at the bottom of the mountain, they don't know what's happening between God and Moses right here. They were drunk at the bottom of the mountain. They were helpless. The people who heard the story were the survivors of the wilderness journey 40 years later, waiting to enter the promised land. As they're about to go do this and take on thousands and thousands of enemies, they needed to hear and see these loving attributes of God told in human terms. They need to know the reason why they're alive in order to hear the story in the first place. How else could they understand the concept of intercessor without this realistic interaction between God and Moses? And as they hear this story, I think they're saying, wow, God used Moses as an intercessor on our behalf, and that's why we didn't die? God wanted them and us to see the kind of intercessor that they needed to escape complete judgment. He knew what Moses would do when he said, I'm going to destroy them. And he knew that it would be a foreshadowing of the type of intercessor that was coming to save their nation and all nations from the bondage of sin. This was not a deviation of the plan. It was part of the plan. God put that in the heart of Moses to intercede for his people. See, God could have just spared Moses like he said he was going to do and make him into a whole nation. He still would have fulfilled his promise. He could have grown Moses the same way he grew, grew Jacob and his family. Instead, he decides to spare them all, and that's what provoked uh, the intercession from Moses. If we tell the story of the Ten Commandments without telling the story about the immediate need for an intercessor, we completely miss the point. If we tell the story of the Ten Commandments and the giving of the Ten Commandments and the details of the Ten Commandments without telling the need for an intercessor, we miss the point.
Romans 3.20 says, through the law came the knowledge of sin. And without the knowledge of sin, there is no knowledge of the need for an intercessor. God wanted us to learn that through this story, we need an intercessor. His love is shown by mercy when judgment is deserved. Once again, though, it's not all happy feelings. The story goes on. Moses, yes, he just interceded for the people and God relented. They're spared from judgment and destruction. But then we're going to see that acting like Egypt brings the same judgments that Egypt faced. So we're going to read verses 15 through 29. We're going to see how the intercessor is also portrayed as the judge. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, inscribed front and back. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was God's writing, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a sound of war in the camp. But Moses replied, It's not the sound of a victory cry, and it's not the sound of a cry of defeat. I hear the sound of singing. As he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses became enraged and threw the tablets out of his hands, smashing them at the base of the mountain. Then he took the calf that they had made, burned it up, and ground it to powder. He scattered the powder over the surface of the water and forced the Israelites to drink the water. Then Moses asked Aaron, What did these people do to you that you have led them into such a grave sin? Don't be enraged, my lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know that the people are intent on evil. They said to me, Make us a God who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us from the, up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I said to them, Whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. When I threw it into the fire, out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control, resulting in weakness before their enemies. And Moses stood at the camp's entrance and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites gathered around him. Then he told them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Every man fasten his sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from entrance to entrance, and each of you kill his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 men fell dead that day among the people. Afterward, Moses said, Today you have been dedicated to the Lord, since each man went against his son and his brother. Therefore, you have brought a blessing on yourselves today. Wow. For Moses, what? To go from such a spiritual high on the mountain talking with God to coming down and seeing the reality of his people that he was going to be delivering these tablets to? What? What a way to be brought back to reality. Talking with God to seeing this kind of disgusting sin. Even though Moses intercedes for the people, that doesn't mean he doesn't experience anger over what they did. Remember, these people are very vulnerable at this point out in the wilderness to their enemies. Their enemies surround them, and here they are at camp. And Moses wants more than any for anything for them to reach the land so that they're going to be safe. He, he wants more than anything for God to go with them and protect them. And their actions at the bottom of that mountain were the biggest threat to that happening. And it only took 40 days to completely blow it. I think after these 40 days of waiting for Moses to come back down, these Israelites are struggling with a certain reality. And that reality is the invisibility of God. It's hard to have a relationship with someone you can't see. This is why the coming of Jesus was so monumental. God was actually visible on earth. But these people, from their time in Egypt, 
all the way to that mountain had to walk by faith that God was really leading them. And they got tired of it after just 40 days. So Moses goes down the mountain and he hears and sees what's going on. He's filled with rage. And just as the word of God was broken by the people by doing all that they did, the tablets representing that word are broken on the ground. That covenant is completely shattered. We will do all that the Lord has commanded. Yeah, right. They didn't. Those commands are broken. And as quickly as that calf was made by the fire, it's destroyed by the fire. And then this first judgment comes as Moses scatters this gold in the water and makes the people drink it. What it most likely would have been is an actual wood carving overlaid with the gold. That's how they would have done it. So he ground that into powder and made this golden calf latte. Actually, since the calf was gone, it would probably be a decaf latte. <laughs> I'm certain that as these people drank this powdery latte, they cringed this bitter water because they were reminded of that very first plague that was brought on Egypt, the Nile, their drinking water turned to blood. The plague that they were once spared from, they're now experiencing in their own way. Moses wants their sin to make them sick and then to expel it, expel. They're going to drink it. They're going to expel it, this false god. Moses is showing them all of their gods are dung, and I'm going to show you right now. It reminds me of when we were in Mexico, the work we were doing with the, the, the Mexican Christians there, they're always battling against the superstitions of the Catholic Church and the worship of Mary in the Catholic Church. And I remember the pastor we were working with one time showing me a video of this Catholic service in Mexico where they're carrying this huge, beautiful statue of Mary. They're all like this big platform, they're carrying it, and all of a sudden one of them kind of stumbles, and this statue of Mary just falls and just breaks into pieces. And the people just like, <gasps> like they freak out. I enjoyed watching because I'm saying, look, don't worship Mary. This is proving it. She's all over the ground. That's what, that's what Moses is doing here. He's burning that calf and making him drink it, realizing that this is just a temporary image. We see here that the man who just interceded for the people is the one who destroys the false god and then brings this new plague on the people. We learn that a compassionate intercessor can also be someone who fiercely brings justice. Jesus is not just the Savior. Jesus is the judge. And this teaching, this story shows us that. Next, we see Moses call Aaron into question. He said, what did they do to you to make you do this? And Aaron, you see his reply, you know how bad they are? I threw this, you know, they gave me all this, I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Like, how lame of an excuse is that? I mean, come on, Aaron, you've been with Moses this whole time and you think he's going to believe that. What I love about this story is not only do we see what a true intercessor looks like, but we also see what a fake one looks like too. Here's Aaron, a Levitical high priest for his people, excusing himself from accountability. Moses assumes as he comes down the best about Aaron. What did they do to you, Aaron, to make you do this? They must have done something to you, but that wasn't the case at all. Instead of Aaron taking ownership of Moses' absence and making the right decisions, he makes the calf, and then he lies about it. 
This man wasn't fit to be an intercessor. He's passive, he deviates from the word of God, and facilitates idol worship. Because we know it said right at the beginning, he fashioned it into an image of a calf. The text says that. But before Moses, he says, the fire made the calf. When Moses was gone, he was the one who was supposed to keep the people in line. And instead, he follows in the footsteps of his father, Adam, and allows evil to take hold of the people. And it makes me want to pause and, and fathers, fathers that are here, I want to speak to you. God has given you a huge task of leading your family. It's hard, and the fact is that you will fail at times. You might not even realize the ways that you're failing at leading your family and how you're leading them into idol worship. But when you fail, which is guaranteed, don't be like Aaron and remove yourself from accountability. Fall on your knees, ask for forgiveness, and come under the word of God to bring you back in line. Only Jesus was sinless. You must show your family how you rely on his righteousness to make you stand up to the task. Don't follow Aaron's example. Don't follow Adam's example. Fall on Christ. Well, Moses, he sees right through Aaron's lies. And in verse 25, he said, it says in the story, Aaron let them get out of control. Moses is going to do right here what Aaron was unwilling to do. And once again, we're going to see how that this true intercessor is not afraid to judge those who sin. And before carrying out this next judgment, Moses gives an opportunity for those who did not party and bow down to the calf to escape. So these Levites come forward. He says, go kill your, your brother, your friend, and your neighbor. So they do. They go and they kill 3,000 men. Now, the text doesn't say this, but I believe that the ones who are killing are the ones who are out there refusing to stop worshiping and partying. But if you think about it, it it's sad. 3,000 is sad, but 3,000 is like one one-thousandth of the people. If there was about 3 million even more people with women and children, that's such a tiny fraction. That's not a lot. God was merciful. And I want to show you a neat parallel, too. If this is the time when the old covenant was made, 3,000 died, do you guys remember the day that the new covenant was made and the Holy Spirit was given? How many were saved that day? 3,000. Old covenant, death. New covenant, life. It's amazing. The people had just witnessed this angel of death in Egypt going back and forth throughout the land, killing the firstborn. Now the Levites, God's servants, do the same thing. A plague that they were once spared from because of the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, they now endure because they abandon God's commands. Death is happening in that camp. It's about time that these Israelites stop acting like Egypt and start acting like God's people. So we see the Levites are blessed for their obedience as the Lord promised to bless those who obey him. And this would stick out to the people as they hear the story read and give them enough proof that obedience does bring blessing. Even after the bitter water and the Levitical massacre, there still seems to be a burden on Moses' heart. He knows that the penalty for their sin has not been paid. Drinking that water, 3,000 dying, there's still an elephant in the room. So let's read the end of the story, verses 30 through 35, where Moses is going to attempt to atone. The following day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, 
Oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. Now if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, I will erase whoever has sinned against me from my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I told you about. See, my angel will go before you. But on the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. And the Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf Aaron had made. So Moses returns to the Lord with the hope to atone. Remember, he had interceded before to not be destroyed. This is a different approach. He's going to atone for their sin. And he says, forgive them, but if not, erase me. Once again, it's a question that pops up in our minds. Wait, is it possible to be erased out of God's book? What does that mean exactly? What's happening here? It puzzles us. You might think that once we're in the Lamb's book of life, as the scriptures talk about, you can't have that erased. Well, you're right. I believe you can't. I believe that once you're written to the Lamb's book of life, it's not like God looks years later and says, man, you know what? You're just not really cutting the Christian life. I'm just going to erase your name. No, it's not what it's talking about. So what is the book that Moses is referring to here? Well, thankfully, the immediate context tells us. He's referring to a record of the people of Israel. God just told him in Exodus 30, verse 12, you're going to take a census, a record of living people. So all the people who are alive would be the ones recorded in this census. A record of those uh, who are alive that came out of Egypt, right? And Numbers 14 is also going to help us understand that, which we're going to come back to in a second. But you might put it this way. When you die physically at this time, your name is taken out of the book of the living. You're no longer living in this realm on this earth. The book that Moses refers to here is vastly different from what is mentioned in Revelation called the Lamb's Book of Life. We had to, he had to, God wanted him to record, who did I save out of Egypt? So that for generations to come, everyone will know what families were in Egypt and were brought out of Egypt. It was a census of living people. Your name cannot be erased from the Lamb's Book of Life, but at this time, it is something that could have been changed based on who is alive or not. That being said, I think that the census actually did have greater implications for more than just who was alive. Whoever was alive and in the census was really representing those who are under Yahweh's care and guidance, those who are under his blessing. To not be on this list, list it indeed was a type of hell. And that's what makes them and us see, wow, how amazing is this request from Moses? The man who just saw this drunken orgy is willing to put his own life on the line. Erase me to see his people spared. Don't cut them off from your blessing, God. Don't kill them. Reminds me of Paul with the Jews. I wish I could be cut off for the sake of my kinsmen. Well, unfortunately, Moses is not Jesus. God says, I will erase those who sinned against me from my book. I will hold them accountable for their sin. The hope that Moses had to atone is gone. As godly as he is, he is unable to stand in their place. We see God fully bring this judgment to erase them from that book, so kill them in Numbers 14, where after testing God, the people after this story, they go on to test God numerous times. You guys know the story. 
And God says, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. All of you who were registered in the census, the entire number of you, 20 years old or more, because you have complained about me. Does that not leave us, the people and us, crying out for one who could actually atone? Moses is truly an amazing intercessor and leader, but he was not sinless, and we see that through Exodus. He could not give his life and successfully pay for the sins of even one person. And that's where we're left at the end of this chapter. There's not much of a resolution yet as we read it. It says the people will be held accountable. God says his angel will go before them, but he does not promise that he himself will go before them. And then to end it all, God inflicts another plague on them, which is showing their Egypt once again. They're getting what they were once spared from because of their disobedience. To be honest, this is a tough chapter to read. Israel has become Egypt and is taking the same punishment as Egypt. God relents from complete destruction, but they still aren't off the hook. And we see that even the, the intercessor participates in the judgment. There is no way that the people could get where they're going to the promised land without God leading them and defeating their enemies. There's no way. Yes, there are a lot of people, but they, they're vulnerable. They have no tower to protect them, no walls. And we know the story goes on in the next chapters. Moses pleads with God to go with them. And God says, I will. I will go with you. But for now, at the end of this chapter, the people are left with quite a wound. You see, this chapter was a warning to the people in the story and in the people that this was being read to. Do not make false gods and worship them. Do not forget the Lord your God and what he has done for you. When you do, bad things happen. When you forget God and you forget his commands, bad things happen. Despite seeing all those miracles, they were so quick to disobey. And guys, that's the same human heart that exists today. I could watch God do amazing things for an entire summer, but guess what? Next week, when I'm facing a situation, I could easily forget all that he's done and all that he is and start doing things in my own flesh. We have that same human heart. But thankfully, hope is still present in this story. Moses is a type of Christ, and he's meant to point them to their need for a Savior. It also shows us what a great Savior we have. Jesus did it. He stood in our place. He didn't have the hope that he could atone. He knew he could atone because of his obedience. He was the Lamb of God to be slaughtered. So I want to give a, a few takeaways here in conclusion as we think about this text and how we apply it to us. First of all, as you think about resolutions and commitments, especially those commitments that you say, I'm going to I'm going to pray, like the spiritual commitments. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read the word more. I'm going to obey God more. I'm going to be nicer to my spouse. Realize that you're going to disobey this year. You're going to disobey next year and all the years after that. So let your resolution be, I will look to Jesus. Let your goal be, I will fall on my knees before the cross. Continue to repent. Continue to have faith and know that Jesus has atoned for your sin. You are going to fail. Let that be your motivation to obey, that Jesus has done it. Because you're already a child of God, and your name cannot be erased from that book. 
Another takeaway, as we share the gospel in our relationships through teaching, whatever it is, share Jesus not only as the intercessor, but also as the judge. People need to know that that loving, kind lamb who is slaughtered is also the fierce lion who will bring judgment on this world, those who do not repent. That brings an urgency in people's hearts to repent because they see the lovingness of Christ, but also the fact that they're under judgment until they repent. Preach Jesus not only as intercessor, but as judge. And then in this story, there's this factor that we have here. Oh no, God's not going to go with us if we disobey. Right? That's the people, the people what Moses feared. We disobeyed, God's not going with us. Well, guess what? Under the new covenant, you don't need to fear that. God has poured out his spirit not because of your obedience, because of Christ's righteousness. And that righteousness has come apart from the law through faith. He will always go with us, even when you don't pray in the morning, even when you disobey, even when you fail at teaching your kids or whatever it is, God is with you because that is a guaranteed covenant that is based on Christ's works, not yours. Praise God. Another takeaway is engage in intercessory prayer for unbelievers. Guys, look at the way that Moses prayed for this people. He's an example to me. I mean, as I go to Cat Lake, as we go to Cat Lake and we see the things that are happening there, it has so much potential to lead us into judgment, the sickening things that happen. But when we know what Christ did for us and this type of Christ here in the story did for us, we realize how much we've been forgiven of, and so therefore we just engage in intercessory prayer saying, God, save them. On a daily basis, engage in intercessory prayer for those in your life that are not believers. Also, when you teach the commands, and I specifically say this for those Sunday school teachers that are out there, those who are raising kids, when you teach the commands, teach them in context of being broken immediately in the need for atonement tired of hearing the focus on the commands and all that we have to do. Don't let that be your, what the kids takeaway is what they have to do. Let their takeaway be, I have already broken these, I need a savior. And once they have that savior in their heart, the law is written on their heart. You'd be surprised how easy it is to teach them the commands. Next, people will naturally be syncretistic. We are naturally syncretistic if we are not taught the word. We need the written word of God to remind us of who he is and to walk in him. Peter says, I'm writing as a reminder. He knew that people need a reminder. We need a reminder of who God is, who we are, and what he's done. That's why we need the word of God. The people didn't have that written word of God yet. They broke the command, so that written word was smashed. Now we have the written word to remind us of who Christ is. Be in it, or else you will, without knowing it, syncretize your faith in Jesus with other things. And lastly, we see Moses try to atone for others' sin, and he can't. Let's learn a little lesson from him that we cannot atone for others' sin. I cannot atone for my children's sin. I cannot make them believe in Christ. Many are burdened on a daily basis. A lot of us don't know that for the sin of others, especially family members that we want to see come to Christ. And we try and atone for that sin without knowing that before God. We take that responsibility of their salvation on ourselves. We can't do that. We learn here that God will judge on an individual basis. 
you're not responsible for their salvation. You're not responsible for their atonement. So just pray for them. Share the good news with them and leave it in God's hands. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we thank you for this story and that it is a stern warning not to abandon you, not to forget you so that we're led into idol worship, so that we don't put, we don't try and worship you in a way that you don't want to be worshiped and we don't worship other things that are not you. But more than just a takeaway of what to do and what not to do, help us to know, Lord, we are like those Israelites who are partying at the bottom of the mountain. Without you, we are hopeless. You saved us while we were still in our sin. And as Christians, help us to remember that and not become more holy in our minds than we really are. Help us to know that we are saved from wrath and that those around us who we might not think deserve to be served, we are just like them, or deserve to be saved. We need to pray for them. We need to live them up before our Father who is so much more merciful than we are. Thank you, Lord, that we have a high priest who did not fail, who did not lie, who did not sin. We have one who goes before us, intercedes for us, and atones for us. Let that be the reality that we keep with us this week. Thank you.